Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is our second look at this passage as we've begun a short semester-long study on Genesis, the book of beginnings. Why, before we get to our text, why study Genesis? Last week we said a number of reasons. Number one, because it's in It's an important study because it lays the foundation for the rest of the New Testament and for the rest of the whole Bible. So much of the Bible can't be understood if you don't understand the book of beginnings. And so if we want to understand the the last half of God's book, we need to understand uh, the first half, even the opening chapters. It's also important because this was Jesus' Bible. He didn't have a New Testament. He he knew the New Testament. (laughs) He knew all of it before he enacted it. But this was his book. This is the one he read. This is what he memorized. This is what he fulfilled. This is what he lived. And we have to understand this if we're going to better understand him. And we said as well that, of course, this is a book that's at least the opening chapters are a point of controversy and confusion in our day. And Christians shouldn't be ignorant of those controversial issues. Uh, And we will be easily confused and easily misled uh, and exposed to the temptation to error if we don't understand what God says about these things. And then I want to add today, there's another reason to study this book. It's for the sake of evangelism. Don't let that scare you. I just mean helping other people because you love them. When Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, who uh, opened uh, Labrie in Switzerland, who taught at Covenant Seminary, when uh, he talked about um, how he would go about speaking uh, to somebody if he was on an airplane for maybe an hour and the person next to him was willing to have a spiritual conversation. And right there you understand he wouldn't have that conversation if they weren't willing. Uh, You know, captive audience though they may be. The first goal is to love people. Uh, But if they were willing to have that discussion, he said he would spend 55 minutes of the first hour on the doctrines of God, man, creation, and the fall from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And spend the last five minutes on Jesus. Now, why would he do that? He said, because many in our day, and it was true in his, it's true in ours. Many in our day do not presume themselves To have been made by God, to be made for God, to be made for relationship with God, and therefore accountable to God. And so, for them, Jesus isn't the answer to any question they're asking. And so, uh, friends, we need to be reminded of that. We need to understand how to speak to people about something other than just Jesus. Why? Jesus. Uh, and Genesis helps us do that. There, there are many people, friends, who are, who are skeptical today. And maybe you're skeptical here today. We're delighted that you're here. This church aims to be a church for the convinced and the unconvinced. We're glad that you're here. We welcome your questions. We don't want to stifle a single inquiry. And we want to be respectful of your questions. Every Christian in this room has questions. No Christian has settled every issue. Uh, And so uh, we're glad that you're here. Now, last week, as we opened this book, just to say a few more words before we read this passage, uh, as we looked at it, we looked at what this text tells us about God. What is God like? And we said four or five things. We said God exists. 
That's one of the points of the opening verse to show you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that God is the creator God. He brought into existence everything. We also saw that God is distinct from the world that he made, but he cares about it. In other words, he isn't the world and the world isn't him. He's different than it. He's above it, but he loves it and he cares about it. That's one of the things we saw. We also saw that the reason God made everything is because he is abundantly generous. God didn't make everything because he was needy or lonely or alone and isolated and dissatisfied. He's always been eternally happy in himself. But he made it out of sheer generosity for us and for his glory. And we saw that God, not the creation, is the central focus of the universe. This universe is not creation-centered. It is not man-centered. It is not you-centered. It is God-centered. He is the subject of Genesis chapter 1. And so his name, his title, God the Mighty One, appears in almost every verse. Now, having said all that, let me invite you to consider Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5 again. And we'll ask a series of questions as we do so. We'll ask, again, how did everything that exists get here? And what was it like at the beginning, verse 2? And what did God do, verse 3? And why do Christians give a rip about this? Why should we care? About this, Those are the questions we'll ask. So consider Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's eternal and everlasting word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters... And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us your glory, and we ask that you would exalt Jesus before us and lift him up and draw every heart to him. Help us to know you, our maker and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How did everything that is here get here? Everybody has to answer that question some way. The Bible begins not by arguing the point with you, by simply asserting that God is and God made it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the reason that everything exists. Now, increasingly in our day and age, people question that. And they question whether God himself exists. And last week we began an answer to the question that when something like this, some people believe that evolution solves all the problems of how everything got here. But it doesn't solve all the problems, friends. How did everything get here? You only have three options, friends. 
You have three options for how everything got here. Either, option one, at first there was nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. And then something popped into existence for the very first time. Something came from nothing. Everything came from nothing. And the something that came from nothing. You understand that's one view. And it's incredibly difficult to believe that billions of galaxies, stars, planets, animals, and people came from absolutely nothing. That these things just simply popped into existence. That, and there's no particular reason for why they exist. Now, that possibility is implausible, friends. And it takes a massive leap of trust and faith against reason to believe that. There's another view out there, friends, and that's this. That either there has always been something or someone. You can divide that into two and three. Either there has always been something or always been someone. Either there's always been an it or a you. Either an eternally existing, self-existing, blob of some kind with all the potential power of the universe we now know bound up inside it but that blob doesn't relate it doesn't communicate it doesn't make plans it doesn't think it doesn't reason it doesn't care it doesn't love because it's not an a person it's an it it's a thing this is Carl Sagan's view the very famous now deceased Carl Sagan, the universe is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. That's the second view. But of course the third one is that there is someone, not an it, but a you. Not a blob, but God, the mighty one, who is eternally existing, self-existing. Nothing outside of him makes him exist. And he is all-powerful, and yet he also thinks, and he reasons, and he has, he has desires, and a will, and he cares, and he loves. He's interested. That person brought into being what now exists. Friends, those are your three views. You may find it tempting to think that the Big Bang explains everything instead of God explaining everything, but the, but the blob the blob simply existing and exploding and flinging muck into the universe doesn't explain everything. Where did the blob come from, we would ask? And why did it explode? And what happened before the big bang of explosion? What was there? Science can't answer that question. Darwin can't answer that question. Evolution doesn't answer that question. Evolution tells you what? It tells you that matter progressed and it progressed favorably. That's what evolution tells you. Matter progressed, it progressed favorably. That's an empirical question, and it has an, an empirical answer, and it's an, it's an, it has a, an empirical problem uh, in our day. But leaving that aside, we want to know this. We want to know where did the stuff come from in the first place? And just to say, well, it's always been there isn't an answer. That's the question. Why is it there? How did it get there? It's interesting that outspoken atheist and evolutionist Richard Dawkins, when pressed to explain where this world we now live in, this world of intelligence, creativity, as well as love, where it came from, he didn't just say, well, it exploded into existence out of nothing. 
And he didn't say, well, you know, it exploded into existence out of the Big Bang from a primary blob of unintelligent, unloving material. But the answer he gave as to why this world exists with all its intelligence and love is that it was possibly seeded by aliens. That's the answer that he gave when pressed. Ben Stein pressed him on that, that aliens from somewhere else possibly seeded this world. That's also the answer molecular biologist Sir Francis Crick, who discovered DNA. That's the answer he gave. Because how do you get intelligence in this world coming from a non-rational, unintelligent beginning? They resorted to saying, well, perhaps intelligent alien life brought it here, friends. Don't think, friends that the Bible can't stand up to the only two alternative views of creation there are. The Bible gives a satisfying answer. And quite frankly, if it was in fact aliens who seeded this universe, where did the aliens come from? It just begs the question, where did they get their intelligence from? Or have they always existed? In which case, maybe we should fall down and worship the aliens. Friends, The Bible gives a satisfying answer. In the beginning, God, the mighty one, created the heavens and the earth. He is responsible for why everything is here and why you are here. He made you. And he made you for himself and for his glory because he's generous. That's the first thing. You haven't sunk your head into quicksand to believe that, friends. Christians, I will say this, are willing to listen to the Bible about this, not because we've solved every riddle or because we're, we're experts in every field of study. We're not in the least, not experts in the Bible. But, but we do believe it's a satisfying answer. And we also believe it because Jesus believed it. And simply as an act of devotion to Jesus, who does know everything, Jesus, who, by the way, the Bible says, became man, lived among us, God in the flesh, was crucified, died, rose from the dead. A a, a harder thing to believe, frankly, than creation itself. We believe this, that through Jesus we can know God. We believe that Jesus believed this. He believed in Genesis. How can we believe God made everything? In light of the other options, I would ask you, How can you not believe this? And in light of the coming of Jesus, dying and rising from the dead, how can you not believe him? That's the first thing. Where did it all come from? It came from God. The second question is this. What was it like at the very beginning? And verse 2 gives you an answer to that question, friends. Notice verse 2. The earth, it says, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There are three characteristics there I want to highlight. It was formless, void, and dark. It was formless. It was, it was without form. The Bible later uses that to speak of wilderness. It was void, empty, barren, vacant, lifeless. And there was darkness. There was no, no light, no illumination, not initially, not till God speaks, let there be light. These descriptions of the original creation are important. They're important, friends, for us to understand 
One of the reasons they're important is this. The very phrases used here are picked up later in the Bible in only two very specific passages, both to speak of God's judgment on sinful humanity. The language is lifted right out of this verse to speak of the effect of God's judgment when God returns the created order to a state of disorder, emptiness, and darkness in light of human sin. For example, Genesis, I mean Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Jeremiah 4, 22 and 23 says this. He's talking about the evil of Israel, the people of God. Speaking about the evil of the people of God and what God does in response to the evil when he says this, God speaking, for my people are foolish and they know me not. They are stupid children and they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth And behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Do you hear that language, friends? What was God's judgment against wickedness, a return to the pattern of life without form and emptiness and dark? Jeremiah, to be clear, isn't implying that the original creation was under judgment or that there was something bad about the original creation as God began it. After all, we know that Genesis 1 will close with God saying it was good. It was all very good. His initial creation has no sin in it. There's no rebellious creatures initially. It was all good. I'm not saying that Genesis 1 verse 2 is under judgment. But the language of it is used as a descriptor of what it's like when God removes his hand of blessing. That's what we're saying, friends. And what is so encouraging, if there's anything at all, about thinking about such a dark subject as that? Is there anything encouraging about thinking about it? Well, there is. There is at least this, that when Jesus was on the cross, do you remember what happened when he was hanging there? For three hours, he hung upon the cross. And what happened? Darkness covered the face of the whole earth, it says. A supernatural miracle of darkness. Darkness descended upon Jesus and all of humanity at the hour of his death. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why is that encouraging? What's going on? He's experiencing darkness and death at the hand of his own father and for us. That's why this is encouraging. Imagine... Imagine you live in your home and it suddenly catches fire and I drive up suddenly and uh, you tell me it's okay, the family has escaped. And I say, well, let me show my love for you. And I get out of my car and I go running into the burning fire and I die there. What would you say? You would say to me, you're such an idiot. What were you thinking? My family is already safe. But if I show up and your family is inside that house and I say, let me show my love for you. And I go into that house and I rescue all your family. And in the process, I myself die. Then what have I done, friends? I have demonstrated my love for you. 
I have substituted, as it were, myself in the place of your family members. And they have lived. And I have died. And Jesus, friends, did that for us. He really loved us upon the cross. And we who are in need of rescue from personal, life-disturbing disorder, spiritual death, And moral and spiritual darkness, Jesus loved and he was torn apart. He was hung upon a cross in darkness, in our place, because he loved us. And so we see that the original state of creation, friends, was formless, void, and dark. And the Bible uses that to point us to Jesus later on. Now, what did God do? With that original creation, that's the third thing. Look at, at verse 3. It says, it says uh, at the end of verse 2, I should say, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. What's happening here? God is going to turn the dark, empty, formless mass into something structured and full of light and life. That's what Genesis 1 is about. He's going to take uh, a disorganized creation and organize it. And an empty, barren creation, and he's going to fill it. And a dark creation, and he's going to light it up. That's the pattern of the first six days as you follow in your Bible. What happens over the course of days one, two, and three? God brings order out of disorder. How does he do that? He He divides, he separates night from day he separates water from water creating the earth and the skies and the seas and he separates the dry land from the seas upon the face of the earth so he creates the oceans and the dry land he brings order into his world and then in days three four five and six what does he do well he fills it he fills it up with creatures he places the sun moon and stars in the universe he he fills the the world with Plants and fish and birds and creeping things that creep along the ground and animals and people. He creates a world that is teeming with life. That's what he's doing. And then in days one and four, you see that God brings light into darkness. He speaks light into existence and he sets the sun, moon, and stars to to govern the pattern of light and darkness. Now, friends, we have to pause and say immediately here... Some people think all of this is one great myth. That it's just a knockoff of other ancient mythologies. Uh, And I want to say that this passage doesn't present itself to us as mythology, but as history. It it bears the marks not of of mythology, but of history. And if you've read J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion, you know that it has a creation account of the universe he made up in his own mind. It's a fascinating read. It's a great myth, but it's just a myth. But this isn't mythology. C.S. Lewis, whose, whose business was myth, and he was a professor at Cambridge and at Oxford, his business was myth. He said that the Genesis account of creation isn't mythology. It was his expert opinion on that. But it's a, let me give you an example, a good example of a myth. A myth from the ancient Near East. So you can hear what, a, what an interesting myth sounds like. It's from the ancient Babylonian creation account, the Enuma Elish. 
And it's written to show how Marduk, the god of that age, came to be the chief god in Babylon. Here's a summary of the myth. Listen to it. In the beginning, there were two gods, Apsu and Tiamat, who represented the freshwater male and the marine water female. We're not really quite sure why that is. But they cohabited and they produced a second generation of of divine beings. And soon Apsu is suffering from insomnia because the young deities are making so much noise. He's just not getting enough sleep. Uh, And he wants to kill these noisy upstarts despite the protests of his spouse. That has been heard in more than one house. But before he managed to kill them all, Ea, the god of wisdom and magic, put Apsu to sleep under a magic spell and killed him. Not to be outdone, wife Tiamat plotted revenge on her husband's killer and... Those who aided the killer. Her first move was to take a second husband, whose name was Kingu, and then she raised an army for her retaliatory plans. And at this point, at this point, the gods appealed to Marduk to rescue them and save them. And he happily accepted the challenge on the condition that if he was victorious over Tiamat, they would make him the chief god above all gods. And so the confrontation between Tiamat and Marduk ended in a blazing victory for Marduk. He captured Tiamat's followers and he made them slaves. And then he cut the corpse of Tiamat in half, creating from one half the heavens and from the other half the earth. And he ordered the early supporters of Tiamat to take care of the world. And shortly thereafter, Marduk conceived another plan. He had Kingu killed and arranged to make man out of his blood. In the words of the story, man's lot is to be burdened with the toil of the gods. Now, friends, that's a fascinating myth. Kind of interesting to hear about. But what we have been reading in Genesis isn't myth, and it doesn't bear the marks of myth. Then how do you explain other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts that are contemporaneous with the Bible's creation account, as far as we know. Why do we not just lump them all together and say they're all wrong? Well, friends, they don't all have to be wrong. They're not all right. But, But then how do you explain the difference between them? And why would you believe Genesis over against these other ones? And here I appeal to Dr. John Curd, my old seminary professor, He's an expert on the Old Testament and Near Eastern studies. Just wrote an interesting book about this. But he says this. In the ancient Near East, the simple accounts, the simple writing story, gives rise to more elaborate accounts over time, not the other way around. In other words, things start simple, and then the story gets embellished, and it grows, and it takes on, it takes on uh, you know, legendary um, uh, mythic proportions. Genesis, however, is simple. One chapter. Therefore, it's earliest, he says. And secondly, there are no examples of myth becoming history in any culture. There are no examples of something being received as myth becoming viewed as true history. But Genesis was received as true history by the earliest Jews. And thirdly, he says, the purposes of the other accounts against Genesis 
are vastly different. In the ancient Near East, the purpose was to explain how in a universe of multiple gods, the chief god became the chief god. But in the Bible, there's none of that. There are no rival deities. God alone creates the universe and he's already on the throne when he does it. Plus, in the ancient Near East, there's always something stronger than the gods. What's that? Magic. Magic is actually stronger than the gods. The strongest god was the one with the most magic. That's mythology. But in Genesis, God just speaks and the world is created. He doesn't use magic. He does it by the power of his own voice. So why then? Are there other ancient Middle Eastern creation accounts? Well, how about this? Since Genesis is true... It's not surprising that we should find in kernels, uh, in, in cultures around the world, kernels of truth. And since Genesis is true, it tells us of a deceiver and of our first parents who fell away from the truth and believed a lie. And so Genesis itself gives you an answer for why there might be a corruption of the true story into mythology. But in any case, in any case, friends, What God is doing is he is taking that which was empty, that which was formless, that which was dark, and he is making it light. And he's giving it order. And he's giving it life. Why? Why do Christians care so much about that, friends? Because they can relate to it. Many Christians look back on their life and they realize that Jesus first became important to them, especially, I would say, if you became a Christian later in life like I did at 18 or some other age, and you look back on a life as a non-Christian, you look back perhaps on a time of personal turmoil, confusion, a sense of darkness in life, uh, life falling apart, a time of glimpsing the emptiness of life without God, where there seems to be no purpose and no meaning. And, And Paul, the apostle, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Uh, What did God do? Chapter 4, verse 6, what did God do? Here's what God did for people like that. For God, he says, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, when we didn't believe and we couldn't see and we were lost and we were blind, God shot an arrow of light into our hearts. What was that light? It was the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God did for you, friends. In the creation of the universe, in Genesis 1, verse, 5, verse 3, when God says, let there be light, is a paradigm for, or a pattern for, what God did for you when you were lost in personal darkness. The hymn writer Charles Wesley put it this way, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. This is what God did for Christians. And so Christians look at Genesis 1 and say, I get it. He did this in my life. Some people answer the question, why am I a Christian? They'll answer it because, well, I believed. 
And others will say, well, I was raised this way. And the Bible's answer to you is, why are you a Christian? Because God made you a Christian. He pierced your darkness with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You didn't give yourself light. He gave it to you as a gift out of his abundant generosity. And that means there is hope for everyone in a broken world as broken people. Do you remember, to close, do you remember the story of King David? King David at one point sleeps with a woman who's not his wife, Bathsheba, the wife, in fact, of one of his closest friends. And then to cover it all up, he aims to and gets the man killed. And then he tries to deny it in his life for a number of months. And then a friend, uh, the prophet Nathan, comes to him. And he, and he makes him realize that his attempts to, to fix the situation, to cover up his sin, to hide it and pretend it isn't there, and to make things okay, had only made things worse. And that's when he prays to God, Psalm 51, which we prayed in our prayer of confession, a portion of. He prays, what does he pray? He says, God Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. And that word create is from Genesis 1 verse 1. Bara in me. Create in me. David knows, because that word is a word used only of God, doing what only God can do. God alone creates the heavens and the earth. And David says, God, you alone can create in me in the face of all my sin." In all my rebellion, you alone can create in me a clean heart, O God. Do it. And God did it. And God will do that, friends. For all who look to Jesus, who cry out to him for mercy, every Christian is a new creation with a new heart. And there is nobody so disordered by sin. There is nobody so trapped in darkness. There is nobody so spiritually lifeless that God, through Jesus, can't help you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you changed the world that you first made and in glorious ways. And we praise you that you do the same with people like us through Jesus. And I pray that Jesus would be precious to us and that you would do your saving work that only you can do for we ask in his name.